Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member in an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with a nice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Special Education Advocacy with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow and I'm so happy you're here. Today we're going to talk about empathy. But before we talk about empathy, I want to spend a little bit of time to be vulnerable with you. Last week, I did an Instagram stories series that explained that I am so, so grateful and so excited about the work that Ashley Barlow Company has done in its less than a year of existence. 
We have had so many people take the lab. I've sold lots and lots of paid products to you, and I've also had tons of downloads of the freebies on the website. The podcast numbers continue to grow, and I really do appreciate all of your support and your input. I have to be completely honest, though, and say that while the impact seems big, it's not quite as big as I thought it would be. You see, I've done this work for quite some time, and the entire time I have done this work, I have had clients and friends and professionals and teachers and administrators say, you know, you've got such a special take on this. You do this so differently. I really, really think that you need to find a way to get to a broader audience. I think you need to find a way to get the word out differently. And friends, 2020 brought so many changes that I thought maybe now's the time. People are at home, people are working more flexible hours. I knew that the online training course business was bursting at the seams, that online training courses were tripling in enrollment in a lot of industries, and I thought, maybe now's the time. Maybe I should do this. And so I did. I started a business during the pandemic because I agreed with those people and thought, I need to have a broader outreach. I need to share my perspective and my story and my knowledge with more people to help to empower more people at the IEP table. But it hasn't really taken off like I wanted it to. Now we are very successful and if nothing else, the success of Ashley Barlow Company is helping me in my private practice as an attorney in Kentucky and Ohio and it's been an excellent creative outlook. Creative out, what's that word? Outlet for me and outlook. Um, and so I've really, really enjoyed the work, but I still think I can make a bigger impact with this business. And this is where you come in. I thought maybe after this little bit of time that we've been together, six to nine months of really active time together, I thought maybe you would have some insight. And so what I did was I did this Instagram story and I'm going to do it again at the end of this week. At the end of the last week of March, beginning of April, I'm going to do it again. So if you don't already follow me on Instagram, please follow me on Instagram. They also show up on Facebook, although it's sometimes it's hard to do, um, uh, what do you call that? Interactive stories on Facebook. So Instagram might be a better place. Follow me on Instagram and or Facebook. And if you haven't already, hop over to my website and join the mailing list. Because on Tuesday, March 30th, an email is going to go out that's going to ask for your input. It's kind of like I'm taking you and making you one big focus group. I have about three different focus groups and I interact with my focus groups often, but I really want to hear from a bigger number of people on a couple of very targeted direct questions because I have some ideas about how to take Ashley Barlow Company in some deeper dives, in some different marketing strategies, in some different sales kind of strategies, but I need to know from you, my audience, if it's actually what you want. Because ultimately, this company is here for you and I want to make things great for you. So if you have input, if you have insight, if you have ideas, share them with me. Not just now, always. I want to know that from you. See, in my other job as an attorney, I get to make the game plans. I get to make the calls. I get to advise my clients. Actually, they make the calls. I always tell them they're driving the bus. But I get to shout out and spew out a bunch of advice. Here at Ashley Barlow Company, it's different. I'm here for you. I need to know what you want, what your ideas are, what your thoughts are, and that will help me to get information to you. So follow me on social media. I'll put that stories up again so that I get good information and I get enough information. Um, thank you to those of you that did already help me. I'm getting a lot of those Instagram messages that are um, voice messages, the one little minute 
um, voice messages and I love those because it's kind of like a brain dump from you. So send me any information, any ideas, any wants, any desires um, and we've got some good stuff coming this summer. Um, I'm just making a couple little tweaks. You aren't going to see a whole lot that's different from us by the way. Don't get nervous that we're going anywhere. Okay, so let's talk today about empathy. Now empathy is something that I always say, God, when God made me, he forgot to give me any of the sympathy stuff. Like his sympathy sprinkler was empty and God's like feet were tired from plantar fasciitis and he didn't feel like standing up any longer. So he was like, I'm not going over to the cabinet and getting more sympathy out of my sympathy um, container, putting it in the little sprinkler. I'm just not going to give this person sympathy. But... I'm gonna do an extra dose of empathy because, well, you know, maybe that'll make up. So I got this huge dose of empathy. I can really empathize with um, a lot of people, with the majority of people. I can almost find some way to connect with somebody and to really put myself in their shoes. So empathy comes very, very naturally to me. And I think it's because it's natural to me that it uh, very organically, became part of my advocacy. And not only really in special education, but kind of across the board in all areas of what I do, I'm always telling the other attorney or the administrators or the teachers or whomever about how a child feels or how our actions are affecting another child or, or the child or my client if it's not a special education case. And so this empathy thing to me is very organic. And as I started um, doing more and more special education work, I started to realize that that's kind of a secret sauce that I have to really help the IEP team understand the child and the child's perspective is really, really, really valuable. So I wanna tell you how I do it because these discussions that I have with my clients, these are the ones that kind of seem cyclical. They're the ones where I say, okay, well maybe we could do this. And then the client comes back and says, well, they said that. Maybe we can do this. And the client comes back and says, well, they said that. Okay, well maybe what about if you tried it this way? And so what this comes down to is really explaining how life is for the child. Why does the child act in a certain way? Why is the child um, doing this or behaving this way? Or how does the child feel when other people do this? When discipline happens or when a social thing happens or when a grade comes in, how does the child feel? And I think really, I, as, as I've said on the podcast before, and I will say again, I really devour information about disability. So I really get into the research, really get into books and research articles and seminars and that kind of thing. And so many of those focus a lot on the why behind the disability or the why behind the behavior. And I think the reason why we want to figure out that why is because we want to figure out how somebody else is feeling. So it makes sense then that if we can identify that, that we share it with the rest of the IEP team. And so that to me is kind of the crux of adding empathy to your advocacy. I wanna tell you a couple of stories about when I was in the classroom that will kind of hammer this in. And then we're gonna focus on three different areas of special education advocacy where I see empathy is almost mandatory in your advocacy. So the first story is about one of my very favorite students. And this little guy was my student in my very first year of teaching. If you're watching on YouTube, you know that I'm a fidgeter. And so I'm sorry, I'm really fidgeting right now. I just had to get comfortable. So this little guy was my very first, in my very first year of teaching. And of course, I didn't feel super comfortable. Um, well, you should know this. I taught kindergarten and I think um, my first year was probably kindergarten and seventh and eighth grade German at two different schools. And both of my schools were um, immersive. And so when I came in, this little guy was in kindergarten. So when I came into the kindergarten classroom, I would give a student the German flag. 
and that student would raise the German flag on his or her desk and the flag, once the flag was up, that meant we only spoke German. And so on the very first day, a lot of these children had not been exposed to German language. And so I used puppets and I would talk to the puppets and the puppets would talk back to one another. And then I would try to engage a child and see if the child could pick up on the patterns of language. Um, and we would just start with, you know, maybe good morning or good day and see if the child could then mimic that with me. Now, this school, by way of background, was also very traditional three R's kind of school. Um, this would have been the 2000 to 2001 school year. And so um, still even 20 years ago, it was antiquated in that there were very, very, I would say strict disciplinary guidelines. And if a child were to misbehave, um, the consequence was kind of old school discipline. So teachers raised their voices, children um, spent a lot of time in the halls. Um, there were like some teachers that even put children in the corner, kind of with their nose in a corner. That was the environment of the school. The school, the children were all um, I think in almost every classroom taught at the very beginning of the year to fold their hands and put their hands on their desk, their feet, you know, kind of in, I call it typing position, just grounded on the floor and eyes on the teacher. And they had to sit almost all day with their hands folded on their desks, unless they were doing something or something like that. So very, very traditional, strict school. Well, I had heard before the school year that there was a little boy in one of my German classes. I know I had five kindergarten German classes and this little boy wasn't going to show up. He was going to be late and everybody was, um, oh, you know, pretty judgmental about this family anyway, because there was an older child that was already at the school and they had Shigella. Um, it's also called Shigellosis, I think. Shigella is something that you might get um, at a like dirty pool or a dirty lake or something. Um, a very, very contagious um, GI kind of condition. And Shigella had gone through some of the um, Cincinnati public pools. And um, I think if you have it, you have to, now we know the word to be quarantined, but kind of stay away from other people for a certain number of days, like 10 days or something. And what I knew about this kid was that um, the child had gotten Shigella, had been back out in the community, and then the Shigella hadn't cleared up or got it again or something like that. And so everybody at the school, you know, these, these teachers who were new friends to me were very judgmental about the fact that they could have gotten it again. And so the, the child finally shows up. We're about two weeks into the school year and the child finally shows up and he is a disciplinary nightmare. He was very disrespectful. He very rarely made eye contact. He was, he fell asleep in class all the time. Um, he wouldn't talk to any other child, but he was aggressive with the children. So on the playground, if he, um, you know, wanted to get in line at the slide, he would just push past everybody. Um, and the, I think the thing that drove the classroom teachers the most crazy was if they would try to um, engage the child and say, you know, why did you do that? Or we can't do that. These are the rules. He would completely shut down and not even make eye contact or look at the child, look at the teacher. So it was kind of hard to see, like, does he understand what I'm telling him? Like, what is the missing link with this child? And so for a little while, he, well, he always wanted to give me a hug when I walked into the classroom. And in this school, that was not necessarily, um, the vibe of the school. And so I talked to his classroom teacher a few weeks into this, into his school year and said, hey, how about if he has a good morning and doesn't have um, to go to the principal or go to the hall or do you know whatever her um, disciplinary consequences were, how about if I give him a hug when I walk past him in the cafeteria? Would that be a good thing? I could say, did he earn his hug? Yes, and that way it's kind of a, a less structured environment, et cetera, and he can still get a hug from me. So we did this thing where if he had a good morning, according to the teacher, he would give me a hug. And then in the afternoon, when I went for my German class, I would really praise him. Well, one day I walked into um, his classroom 
and he was asleep. He had his head on the table and I tried to wake him up. And when I woke him up, he had these puppy dog eyes, just the saddest eyes I had seen on a child. And I really, really looked at him and he had very, very dark skin. He was an African-American little boy. I wish I was still in contact with him because I so wonder what, um, what became of him. So I looked at him and for the first time, I really, really looked at him up close that day. And here he had a horrendous black eye. The white of his eye was all red um, and quite frankly, bloody. And I said, oh, buddy, what happened to you? And he just broke down in tears. So fortunately, the classroom teacher was there. I took him out in the hall. She took over the class. And as I talked to him, what he shared with me was that um, he had the night before his baby sister wasn't able to sleep and he had gone downstairs to ask his parents and aunts and uncles and other people that were living in the home with him if they could turn down the radio. And one of them had punched him in the face. And I thought, here's the secret about this child. He is abused. He's living in an environment where he has no trust. He has very little, he doesn't feel love. There's probably no discipline. He doesn't trust adults. So why would we expect for him to trust us? That's why he's not making eye contact with us. That's why he's not acknowledging the consequences. There probably aren't consistent consequences in his environment. And so we had to go through the whole thing of reporting it and everything else. And every step along the way, what I learned about this child was sadder and sadder and sadder. Now, of course, I wouldn't expect his parents to come in and say on the on the first day of his school year, well, you know, we run a meth lab in our kitchen and we abuse him and we can't keep consistent consequences. I wouldn't have expected that of, of these parents because who would say those things? But what the point of that story is that once I knew a little bit about his history, I could engage with him so much differently. Discipline was not going to work with him. Yelling at him, removing him from the classroom, those things weren't going to work for him. In fact, they were perpetuating what was happening in his home environment. And if there was any way to build trust with him, then it was going to have to happen in an entirely different manner. And so I, for one, in the German class, in my 30 minutes that I engaged with this child, really changed the way that I engaged with him because I had that specific information. And I could empathize with him in a different way. I got just a little bit of information about this child and how this child might feel and what his experiences might be. And I thought, okay, I can take that information. Now I see my the wool has been lifted and i can engage with him differently same school i think it was the next year but i'm not sure i only taught at this school for three years so sometime in the same time frame um there was a child that had a teacher that was new she was also new to the school um she had come from a school with a totally different environment and a totally different area of town and um, a school that drew from a different population and um, she you know wasn't a I couldn't be a strong leader because I was new to the school similarly she couldn't be a strong leader because she was figuring out this new school um, and if I remember correctly she also had had a few years where she wasn't teaching so she was also you know kind of getting back into her materials and getting back into the vibe of being in a classroom now, one thing you should know about this school is it's a magnet school. And so um, they are, were allowed to recruit. Um, in fact, one year I was in charge of recruitment for the school and I would do tours and a little presentation about the school over coffee for parents. Um, I don't know, like once a week or something like that. And um, people in order to get into this school would spend the night in tents for sometimes even, I think two overnights, if I remember correctly, 
in order to get their child into the school. The waiting list was hundreds of families long. Um, so it was a big deal to get to go to the school where I taught. And so people didn't, once they were there, they didn't want to be asked to leave. And I don't think that really ever happened or happened very often, but I think in this particular case, it was motivating. So there was a little boy who was honestly just plain annoying. <laughs> There's no other way to say it. He drove me bonkers. Now, remember, I taught language and language is very much based on your auditory processing and your availability to sit and concentrate to what you're hearing. Now, because I taught kindergarten foreign language, like I said, I used puppets, I used songs, I used posters, I used manipulatives. I tried to keep a visual component and a movement component and all of the other components that are important to learning. But my children had to be available to hear what I was saying. And one of the most annoying things that this child did was he was constantly making noise. He would sniff, he would um, tap on things, he would do this kind of um, glottal kind of sound like uh, uh, um, and it seemed like no matter what we did, he would um, continue with the sounds, these repetitive sounds that would distract everybody. And so I just would ask him to stop, you know, I would, what, when I was um, teaching in this environment, I used each teacher's um, behavior management system. So if they used clips, I would do the clips, um, which I can't believe I, <laughs> I just admitted that I used a clip system. Um, you know, if, if Dojo didn't exist, but if they used Dojo, I would have used Dojo. I used whatever the classroom teacher used because I thought since I was going into their environments, into their classrooms, that would be the best um, thing for the kids to generalize. And so I did whatever was in that classroom. I can't remember, frankly, what it was, if I wrote his name on the board or whatever, but the kid was always in trouble. I was always annoyed by this child. So I was asked to attend his IEP meeting and I thought, oh yes, I want to go to his IEP meeting. So the first IEP meeting, the mom says, well, he was just recently diagnosed with ADHD. And even at 22 or 23 years old, I was a voracious reader. And so I was like, you know, there are some, she, mom didn't want to do medicine. And so I said, well, there is some recent research or fairly recent research about um, nutrition. So, you know, what about nitrates? Could you um, eliminate nitrates? And what about cinnamon? I remember talking to him about cinnamon candies. And in fact, I even bought him cinnamon candies to see if that would work, like those little red ones that your grandma used to give you at church. Um, and, you know, I had this discussion with her like, what about all of these other ideas? Because if you don't want to do medicine, maybe you could do some of these things. And mom did toy around with some of the things. And she started, I think he maybe even saw a counselor. Um, and we would have these meetings with her occasionally, or the classroom teacher would call her and then the classroom teacher would fill me in. But nothing was working. Nothing was helping the child's um, annoyances. And that's what they were to me at the time. And finally, the mom came in and said, so I know that this is all annoying you and I know that this is um, really hard to manage in the classroom, but he can't control it. And I thought, well, why can't he control it? Like, I, I tell me more. Couldn't figure out why would this be involuntary? Now, when I started <laughs> saying this, because you care enough to listen to a podcast about special education advocacy, I'm sure you know. The child was experiencing tics. He had Tourette's syndrome. They were tics. They were completely involuntary. And by me saying stop ticking, what's he going to do? He's going to tick. And the mom knew. She knew the entire year that he had Tourette's syndrome. She knew that his tics were worsening. She knew before the school year that his tics had gotten bad over the summer. He also was having a very stressful thing ha happening at home. And the mom didn't tell us because she didn't want the child to be removed from the school. 
And so here this poor child is ticking and then is being told, please don't exhibit the symptom of your involuntary diagnosis because you, um, because the teachers didn't know. If we knew that he was experiencing tics, then of course I, for one, I can't speak for anybody else, would have learned more about the tics, learned about how to manage them, how to support him as opposed to discipline him. And then he would have been available for learning. But I couldn't empathize with him because I didn't have that information. And sadly, I was one or two years into my career and didn't even think that it could be something like Tourette syndrome or just motor tics or something like that. And so once I knew the information, of course, I changed the way I interacted with the child. I changed the way that the other children interacted with the child. And of course that took a little while. I do remember at one time, um, two or three weeks in, I had to go back to the mom and say, hey, could I have a discussion with the rest of the children in the class? Because what they're doing is they're trying to say to me, um, Frau Meyer, little Joey, whatever his name is, is making the sound again, he's bothering me. Well, I had changed my mindset and I had changed my mentality and I had switched from discipline to support, but the other children hadn't. And why would I expect for them to have done that? Because they didn't have that missing link of information that I had. And so I think the mom, I don't really remember. I know the answer was yes, but I don't really remember if she did a presentation or if the um, classroom teacher did or if she let me do it. But I do remember that I suggested that we give everybody else that missing link of information. So when I share those two stories with my clients, normally my clients get kind of an aha and they say, oh yeah, because what happens at home isn't gonna go to school unless I tell them. What I learn at the doctor, the therapist or the occupational therapist's office isn't gonna be discovered by the school unless I tell them. What I know about my child's behavior, when it happens, how it happens, why it happens, around whom it happens, all of those things, they're not gonna know that unless I tell them. And if I tell them all of those things, my child's educational experience is going to be better. It's going to enhance my child's education. It's going to provide my child more opportunity for learning. If I share a little bit of that information, if I'm vulnerable, if I kind of get rid of my hesitancy, then my child's educational experience is going to be better and the teachers are going to be able to empathize with my child. So that empathy component really has a huge aspect to the advocacy, in my opinion. Now there's nothing an idea. I'm not saying that teachers have to empathize with a kid. So I'm not saying that you can go in if you're a parent and say, you have to care. I'm saying that what it does is it unlocks this, oh, <laughs> aha, the light bulb. And then people want to help. They want to know more. So we're going to go through three places where I use empathy a lot in special education. The three places are in school refusal, children that won't go to school d willingly um, and or once they're at school just can't participate in school or won't participate no matter if you look at it a different way. In cases where children are um, um, kind of parents always say tagged as a behavior problem and I don't necessarily look at it that way but in cases where schools just don't seem to understand a child's behavior I use it there a lot and then also in inclusion cases and that's kind of a different why so let's kind of break into each one of these different things school refusal so my first school refusal case that I can think of involved a teenager and the teenager was, um, and this is kind of, now that I have, have had a lot of these, they almost always follow a similar pattern. 
So the child on the surface, on the face, um, appears to be a very well-adjusted, involved, happy, energetic child. The child might have even gotten A's and B's on report cards, probably plays a sport, um, has involved parents that um, can really share a lot about the child's experience and knows to get the child involved in the sports and the things that the child does. But somehow, for some reason, the child isn't getting to school, can't get on the bus, can't get in their parents' car, and try as they may, it can't happen. Now, a lot of times these school refusal things first surface in middle school to early high school. And the reason that they surface at that time and most of my experiences is because the parents can't physically haul the child to school. They can't carry them into the office anymore or hold their hand and walk them up the sidewalk anymore. So once it's like fifth grade, sixth grade, and the parent can't take the child to school physically, then we start to get these school refusal things. And so what I did the very first time that I had one of these things was I talked about my own experience because lucky enough for me, this child that I represented the first time, and this has happened several times since, had a diagnosis that I actually have. I have um, a couple of autoimmunities and I also have um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a, um, which affects the connective tissue in your body. So I'm hypermobile and really flexible. And I don't know if it is, in my particular case, if it's because I have four compression fractures in my back, um, which I shared with you in another podcast. I was in a gas explosion when I was a child and I broke four vertebrae. Unfortunately, the backbone's connected to almost every other bone. I have plantar fasciitis. And they're telling me that it's connected to my back. And I'm like, ah, oh, why is it always my back? Um, so I don't know why. If it is the EDS, which oftentimes gives you fatigue, if it is my pain that gives me fatigue, if it is my autoimmune condition that gives me fatigue, if it's adrenal fatigue, which I also have that's giving me fatigue. But I experience crippling fatigue on a probably weekly basis and I just power through because it's my personality. But what I know about fatigue is there are certain things that I can power through far more easy. So I don't like to um, do like kind of day in, day out cleaning. I like to like rip the house apart and clean. I like to get really dirty and landscape, but I don't like to like make sure that the mulch hasn't um, kind of like blown onto or been swept onto the sidewalk by a rain. I don't like that kind of cleaning. And so that kind of day-to-day -day cleaning, I don't, I can't muster up the energy for that as much. Now on a Saturday, I can clean for eight hours and I can do baseboards and I can paint baseboards and I can, you know, get ripper and dirty doing landscaping. So I can muster up the energy for something that's like really extreme because I like it. But a non-preferred task, like just taking 75 Nerf bullets from 75 different places and putting them all in one bin, I don't wanna do that. And I don't often muster up the energy for that because it's non-preferred. And so I went into this meeting and said, okay, look at me. I am energetic, I've got this big smile, I'm dressed like this, I was able to get myself a JD, but I experience a lot of the same things that this child experiences, so let me tell you how this affects me. And I gave a couple of examples, and the people sitting around that table had never thought about it from that perspective. They had never thought about it in those terms. And so when I said it, people started nodding and they started saying, okay, hmm. And so instead of sending the school resource officer to the child's home, instead of having the child wait for a class to be finished before the child could enter school, if she went in the first period, they weren't letting her in until the beginning of second, if she was late, 
Instead of letting homework pile up and pile up and pile up and not giving her any assistance in managing those deadlines and um, it, it, um, the executive functioning of how to structure her time, they were disciplining her. And instead of doing all of those things, the school started saying, hmm, well, maybe we can offer some support here. So what I did by explaining my story is I helped them understand why they needed to offer her the supports that are mandated at law. And this really gives the school some buy-in. It really gives them the aha, that light bulb, that realization that not only do they have to provide the support, but here's why they should provide the support, which gives them the buy-in, which gives the respect, which makes the parents feel heard, and which is going to give the child a lot more support. So when we explain those kind of vulnerabilities, or when we just kind of like say, you know what, give me 10 minutes of the floor, and I'm just gonna kind of ramble, so that you can see how my child's life works, aha, it is huge. It makes so many things make sense. You might feel like you're complaining. Yeah, maybe it is complaining, but if you take the complaining and you make it functional, you say, I'm gonna tell you how life is from my child's perspective, and then here's what I've done in order to make things work, Ah, it helps so much for the people that are at that table from the school's side. Behavior. So we talk about behavior um, and we immediately go to the function. What's the function of the behavior? What's the why behind the behavior? Now, I work a lot in the IDD communities, children with intellectual and developmental disabilities, like Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, um, things that are um, moderate to significant by way of need. And in cases that um, involve that population, there are oftentimes breakdowns that involve behavior. So when my child Jack went to um, preschool, he literally pulled some children's hair out. Um, he, I remember I walked in on the first day and I said, your fish is gonna die. You're gonna have to put your fish up on a higher shelf um, because he would just wanna push that fish over. When he went to kindergarten, we didn't let him on one particular slide because the slide, I don't, it's like the most, dangerous playground um, design ever. The slide is about one and a half stories up in the air and he didn't wait in line to go on a slide and I was so afraid he was gonna shove a kid and shove the kid over that slide and the kid was going to fall a couple of stories, which just terrified me. And so I said, please don't let him on that slide. And so he was impulsive, he was, um, annoying. <laughs> I'm his parent, I can say it, right? And I have a lot of children that are experiencing the same kind of behaviors and the school doesn't understand them. They don't know why they're happening. Now with behavior, what we've done is we've, experts, not we, experts have figured out the behaviors have functions and that if we can get to the function, we can support the behaviors before the behaviors happen and we can come up with some great tools for um, the behaviors if the behaviors occur because they're naturally going to occur. So what can we do to, um, to set better boundaries for when the behaviors happen? But with the function, ideally we can support the child so that the behaviors don't happen or they don't happen as frequently or they don't happen as significantly. And so we have figured out the why. If we can communicate more about that why to a school team, we're going to get that empathy component. So one of the things that I explain is sensory dysregulation. 
Sure, you can see on a piece of paper that a child is sensory dysregulated, but what does that mean? How does that look in that particular child? I oftentimes tell a story about when we were at a BW3s, which is like a wings place. I think they're all the way across the country, but it's um, wings. And so they're usually totally packed with people. There are a hundred TVs and the TVs are mounted on the walls above, above the bar. You know, it's just like a wings, wings beer sports, I think might even be their motto. So we were at a BW3s after one of Griffin's baseball games and Jack was totally unraveling at BW3s. He, and when he unravels, he doesn't um, retreat. He gets really loud. He um, might start spinning. He might, when he was little, he would throw things. He would yell, pull hair, just he would exhibit behaviors. And so, um, we were, you know, he was young enough, we were giving him proprioceptive input in his joints, kind of some joint compression things, and I was trying to distract him with maybe a book or something like that. And all of a sudden, he ripped off his shirt and started clutching at his chest. So I yanked him out of the high chair, took him outside, put his head on my heart, which has always been regulating to him, and was just kind of rocking him outside and he still didn't seem to calm down. So I went inside and I said to my husband, with Down syndrome, a lot of children, a lot of babies that are born with Down syndrome have cardiac things. And Jack was cleared by cardiac, but um, by cardiology, but I was really worried about his heart because he was still kind of clutching at his heart. So I said, I think I need to take him to the emergency room. He can't tell me what's wrong and he just can't seem to settle down. And so he and I headed over the bridge to our children's hospital, which is about 10 minutes away. And we got there and he did have an ear infection. So they said, well, maybe it's referred pain from his ears. That was nothing new. He always had an ear infection. Um, but a couple of years passed and it happened a couple more times. And you know what we realized? It was a panic attack. Jack has panic attacks. And they happen when he is in an environment like that. They also happen before surgery and stuff like that. But they oftentimes happen when he's in a really busy environment. And so what I say to people when, they, when we talk about sensory dysregulation with Jack is I say, you know how you feel in a casino? You know how in the casino um, it's smoky and that's like attacking your olfactory um, compartment, whatever you call that, your, your nose. And you, and the lights are blinking and they're so distracting that you get like one of those headaches behind your eyeballs. And it's so loud that you can't even think, like you actually have to think to listen to the people. And if you're me, then you try to play some kind of game and the game involves thinking. And I just feel like I'm like floating in some other universe and I cannot concentrate. I've literally, <laughs> I've only been to Las Vegas once and I kind of never want to go back because it was too sensory dysregulating to me. And I just wanted to go to the pool and like calm down and read a book. So that's how Jack feels kind of all the time. And can you imagine feeling like that all the time? Can you imagine feeling like you're floating? What Jack, Jack doesn't want to go read a book by the pool. Jack wants to crash into things. He wants to feel the world. And so that's his sensory dysregulation. And so if we understand the why behind it and we really kind of get into the sensory dysregulation, then we can find him opportunities to crash in a safe way, in a proactive, preemptive way. So what we do is we give him heavy work. Jack um, runs errands for the office and he opens all those heavy fire doors in the school and he walks and walks and walks from one side of the building to the other side of the building. And he might carry a whole basket of books so he's doing this heavy work, which is giving him the sensory input he needs, and then he can sit down and he can work and it works. So could the school do all those things without really caring? Yes, of course they could. But once they can empathize with it, they buy into it. And so if he starts, he doesn't pull hair anymore, but let's say he did. If he started pulling hair, they'd be like, oh, buddy, I know it is loud in here. Let's see if we can get you some support and they would empathize and they would get him the support he needs. So when they do it, 
you get that buy-in, you get the aha. Last thing, and it goes kind of hand in hand with the behavior piece and its inclusion. So if we can get a school to really understand the child, what motivates the child, what is behind the child's actions, what is behind the child's desires, what is behind the child's profile components, then we've got a larger, we've got that buy-in. And the buy-in oftentimes makes the school team say, hmm, maybe that could work. Maybe we could mimic what you're doing in the community, parents, at our school. So a lot of times it's behavioral that the school says, it's just not working behaviorally. We need to move the child to a self-contained classroom for all or part of the day. That's when you go into the empathy. But what if it isn't behavioral? What if it's just, well, we've never had a child with Down syndrome in a gen ed classroom in kindergarten. So then what I encourage parents to do, I do this totally um, methodically in my practice, and I actually go through that in the in the inclusion workshop that's for sale on my website. But in the inclusion setting, what I do is I say, okay, so what we're going to do is we're gonna kind of get like, how does this child's community work? How does this work for the child in the community? And so I have the parents talk about, um, you know, how the child does in their church school, which is inclusive, and in the soccer league, which is inclusive, and how hard the child works in their private therapies, and what the private therapist says about the child's ability to be included. And we kind of get into all these different aspects so that the school team says, okay, well, if it works there, and you know, sure, this happens, but this is what they do for it, well, then maybe we can have it work here. And now I understand how that child likes that and how that child is really benefiting from that and how the family and this church community and the other kids on the soccer team are benefiting. And I want that here. I understand now the child's stretches and the child's successes, and I want that here. So we aren't just cramming it down their throat and saying the law says you have to do inclusion. We're giving them that aha that buy-in that says, oh, we could do that here. So that's what it boils down to. No matter if you're talking about behavior or inclusion or school refusal or some other issue that comes up for you, what we have to do is we have to say, this is how this is affecting the child. This is how the child perceives this, experiences it. And then the school will say, oh, okay, that shed a little bit of light on that. So now I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, not only because I have to, but also because I want to because I understand the child better. And if you can get that kind of buy-in, you're going to get relationships, and that's really the key to it all. I hope that's helpful. It's something that I use all the time. It's kind of convoluted. It does take a little bit of practice. Keep at it, you're doing a great job. Don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter, to my mailing list over on the website and to follow me on Instagram and Facebook. I really wanna hear your input this week um, and I will see you next week, same time, same place.